0: Well, we're picking up right where we left off before the holidays, trying to wrap up this last portion of Chapter Nine of Daniel's book, and it's uh, an interesting study for me, an extraordinarily um, practical study. It's not all wrapped up in uh, uh, whether or not you know the Antichrist has six 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 on his license plate, or uh, that there are black attack helicopters out there being commandeered by demons. That's not the object of, of Daniel. And, and as we're working through this, I think we've been able to see that. And as we come down to the end of chapter 9, we're going to come to one of the most controversial portions in the whole book of Daniel and some things that we need to try and weed out. And there are two main ways this portion of Scripture is approached. I'm going to give you the approach I think works best. Otherwise, I'd be a little stupid if I gave you the approach I thought didn't work best. Uh, you could go someplace else and get that. Uh, But as you know, we've been working through, we've been using a, a pattern all the way through this book, and that is that we know from each of these texts some things that are certain, and then we can make some reasonable extrapolations from that, but then there are some speculative portions. And what we're trying to do is avoid the speculative portions and stick with what is certain and what is reasonable. Now... The certain are always going to be the anchor point. That's where you want to stay. Things that are reasonable are things that we're going to be able to debate among ourselves, people from different theological points of view. And, and we don't have to hit each other with baseball bats to make that work. We can just say, okay, you're wrong and I support your right to be wrong. But um, and, and of course, you'll all find out where you're wrong as we work through this. But we, we come to a very, very important section here. And leading into it, we remember that this prophecy said that there would be this period of four hundred and ninety years, these sevens, these periods of seven. You'll remember from a few weeks ago that in the Jewish mind, time was marked off in sevens, not the way that we use decades. We use decades, every ten years everything gets and then and then perhaps centuries. But in the Jewish mind, because they were to have a Sabbath rest every seven years. Because they were have to, uh, had a weekly Sabbath, their mind worked in those terms of seven, and so that 's the way the, the passage here actually lays out this entire issue so seventy weeks or seventy sevens and and virtually all commentators are agreed those seventy sevens are seventy weeks of years, which would be four hundred and ninety years and those that amount of time is given, he tells us in the passage, picking up in verse 24, where we were, that six things are to be accomplished. To finish the transgression, we talked about that. To put an end to sin, we talked about that. We talked about to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy... All it says in the Hebrew is to anoint anoint a most holy. We said at that time it could be a place or a one. We're going to come back, I think, from the context and show that it's pretty difficult to think of anything other than a person as being anointed here um, because that, in fact, is where we get our word. This is where it shows up in the Bible first. Messiah. This is all about the Messiah. But... This brings us back to verse 27, and this is where things get really dicey. And we have to answer a number of questions that would arise. If you're going to be a good student of the Bible, you're going to look at a passage like this and say, all right, what does that mean? And how do I arrive at what that means? And there's certain questions you're going to want to ask yourself about the passage. So it says, and he shall make a covenant, a strong covenant, with many for one week, we had 70 weeks. And as a matter of fact, we're told that a little later on that there's going to be a division of these. There's going to be a period of seven and then more. And then there's going to be this last seven that kind of hangs out there by itself. Uh, It's called Daniel's 70th week. For all those of you prophecy bugs who read those things, we're going to say when does that take place and how does that finish out. So he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, or for seven years, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So who's the question? First question is, well, who's he? Who's this he that's going to make this covenant with many for one week? It's mentioned twice. He's going to make the covenant, and he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So we're going to have to answer that question for ourselves if we're going to interpret the passage correctly. The second question we need to ask ourselves is, what covenant is being spoken of here? Where does this covenant come from? So, okay, we've got this person to identify, and we've got this covenant to identify if we're going to understand what the passage is communicating to us. We work through those issues. So let's go back, and we have to understand that this is taken as a unit, this 25, 24 through 27, really forms one unit, and we have to look at it that way. So who is he that's going to make the strong covenant? What does it mean that he'll put an end to the sacrifices? And what covenant is being talked about? There's a lot there to unpack. And these questions are answered primarily by most groups one of two different ways. That either this person back here, this he, and... Uh, well, let me back up one more. Oh, isn't this good? This is this review. You, you just have to memorize this. That's Because uh, I can't back up the way I'd like to. I'm technologically challenged. All right. So, who's the he? Right? We've got to go back. And two main ideas are given, two main ways of understanding who the he is. Some groups say, well, the he going to make this strong covenant with many. I'm not sure who they are yet. For one week and then for half of the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. Sounds like a pretty negative thing going on there. Must be the Antichrist. Could be. A lot of people interpret it that way. Or, he'll make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. Could be Christ. So the question is, which one is it? Is that going to change the way you read the entire passage? I've got to make some sort of a determination. Is this the Antichrist or is this Christ? Because believe it or not, those are opposite ideas. It's either going to be the good guy, the Messiah, or it's going to be the bad guy. And life is going to get pretty ugly. And we've got to look through what that could possibly mean. Okay, so we've got that down. And we know we've got to wrestle through those now. I've created a little tool for us to try and work through that in just a second. Um, Some of you are going to have to understand what an anaphor is. Anybody know what an anaphor is? Come on, you guys who, did you take English? In high school, you know that there are antecedents and there are anaphores. Antecedents are not, are not mints, Um, they're not bugs, right? Something that comes before, and then anaphores are, are other ways that that's being referred to. We're gonna work through this. As a matter of fact, this is all built around Bob Kilper, and you'll understand that in just a second when we get there. I'm gonna call this actually Bob the Antecedent and His Anaphores. But we'll, we'll get there, alright? So just, just walk through, walk with me, um, as we go through this. So know therefore and understand that, back to verse 25, that from the Going out of a word to restore and build Jerusalem, and we've talked about that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be a king who made that decree. It could be God's decree, so we don't have to fix it in time, because we can fix the time by what's going to occur after the 490 years, so it's easier to work backwards. So know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks... So this anointed one, the Messiah in the original, is also called Prince. And then for 62 weeks, so we're going to cover 7 and 62, 69 weeks. We're waiting for the 70th week. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, you have got the same word there, Messiah again, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come... Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, many would say, well, this prince who is to come, even guys that that I like a lot, say, well, this is something else. Who's this prince who comes and destroys the city? Must be a bad guy. We'll see, right? We're going to really work through the text and let it talk for itself. And its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, and desolations are decreed, and he'll make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he'll put an end to his sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, isn't this fun? So we're going to unpack it. And and I promise very few of you will get a brain cramp. Um, It's not all that bad. So this is Bob Kilper. Bob, the antecedent, and his anaphores. Bob, thank you for lending yourself to me. From 7 in the morning... Until Bob gets hungry, it'll be two hours. I'm going to follow kind of the style of that passage we just read. Okay, so bear with me. You can you can do this. You can stretch your brain. You can actually look at your Bible and see where I'm going with this with this little tool. So from seven in the morning until Bob. So Bob is the antecedent for which all the rest to which all of the rest of the anaphors will point. Watch this. It's magic. From 7 in the morning until Bob gets hungry, it'll be two hours. Then it'll be three hours more before he actually gets something to eat. Now, there's a he. Who does that he refer to? It refers to Bob, right? There's the antecedent. There's the anaphor. So it'll be three hours more before he actually gets something to eat, and he, no confusion, anaphor to the antecedent, will go looking for lunch but he'll not be able to find what he wants, anaphor to the antecedent, until he, anaphor to the antecedent, figures out exactly what he's hungry for. He won't eat. We're all on the same page so far, right? So anybody confused that all these he's refer to Bob? All right, so Bob Kilper has very strange eating habits. He gets up in the morning at 7 and... And that's two hours before he decides to get hungry. And then it's three more hours before he eats. I don't know why. Uh, You'll have to ask Carolyn. She'll tell you. But that's, that's the way it works. But you got, you got the antecedent and you got the anaphores, right? It's not hard. Let's, let's, let's continue it along. So when he, still an anaphor, finally does sit down to eat, he'll, anaphor, only get halfway done before he, anaphor, is interrupted and does not finish. Then his family will see the leftovers, Carolyn, this is very bad, and eat them while he's gone. Now, we still know who he is, right? He's still Bob. We haven't haven't missed any because we're in one section. We're we're telling one thing. Take all these verses together and you'll get this, okay? And this pattern will continue because of the guy that keeps calling him, we know who him is, that's Bob, away from his meals until that guy's gone. Now, a second person has been introduced to the matrix. Who's the second person? Oh, it's the guy. And the guy keeps calling him away from his meals until that guy's gone. Right? This is pretty clear. We we got the picture. We got the antecedents. We got the anaphores. Everything's working great. Now, let's go back to our passage and do exactly the same thing. All right? So that we're not confused by it. So know, therefore... And understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven weeks of years. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So here's our antecedent, the Messiah, the prince. Right? That's where we start. That's the first person mentioned in the passage, and he's the antecedent, and we'll see where the anaphores go. And so after the 62 weeks, an anointed one. Now, is this a different anointed one? Well, we might say that, but we're gonna come down here and find the prince again. Connected. So if we're working through from antecedents to anaphores, we'll just, we'll just let this passage play out that way. So, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he, there's our anaphor well, Who's that pointing back to? So if we don't have an antecedent for that he, we can't understand who it is. And whoever this is has to point back to what's earlier in the past. So this he, this anaphor, is based on the antecedent of the Messiah, the Prince. He'll make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he, back to your anaphor, shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now I gotta, I gotta sort through that. What does that mean if this is the Messiah and the Prince, and he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering, and The prince's people destroyed the city. I've got to wrap my brain around all that, right? And on the wing of abomination shall come one, a new one, who makes desolate. This is is a new concept added after the previous. And until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So I've got an anointed one, a messiah, and a prince, and I've got a desolator. And I've worked through, but my, my antecedents and anaphors here are separate from the ones that have come above. Right? So, let's go back and work through that. How do I interpret these things? Who's this Messiah, this Prince? Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the title of the Messiah. He's the Prince of Peace. This is not a title of an Antichrist. But this is, and you've got to remember, Daniel is writing in the aftermath of having been familiar with Isaiah's work. This is familiar language to him. He's got it. He knows what's going on here. And he makes this connection. Let's continue in Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? The Messiah, the Prince, the Anointed One will be cut off. Language that's used of Christ, but never used of Antichrist. He'll be cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression Of my people. Interesting. How about the covenant? Well, in the same way, also, he... There's an anaphor. Who's the antecedent? Everybody knows this passage, right? Paul's talking about Jesus at the Last Supper. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was established at the end of the 490 years. By Christ. This is answering to uh, Jeremiah 31 and to Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. This is the new covenant. There's never, except if you interpret Daniel 9 as referring to the Antichrist, there is never that concept of covenant in that way for the Antichrist. Anyway, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And what about the end of sacrifice? Hebrews 9.26 But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And so, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, if we think Theorize a last days restoration of a Jewish temple, then we have people going back and sacrificing when Christ, the Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. It would be an abomination. You never go back to the type once you've received the fulfillment. I've used this illustration any number of times with you all. And you remember it since I met my wife on the Internet. And she sent me that picture of her. And I knew right away it wasn't Jennifer Aniston. Even though she said that's who it was. And she knew I wasn't Brad Pitt when I sent her my picture. But once we got married, if I continued to kiss her picture instead of her, something would be weird. And if you can imagine the Jews going back to the types and the shadows after the Christ has come, that's weird. It's an abomination. Why in the world would you sacrifice an animal when Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us? It's backwards. It doesn't fit the passage. So, let's go back and try and tidy that up some. I threw a lot at you, didn't I? Anaphores, antecedents. You're going to go home. Kids, use this at school. I mean, you'll blow your teacher away. I bet you half your teachers don't know what an anaphore is. We'll work through it. Okay, so here's the way I think the passage works. I will leave room for other people to interpret it differently and wrongly. But this, this is the way I understand it, and I can, only, I can only teach it to you the way I understand it. So if the prince is Christ... As it was mentioned, as he's given that title in Isaiah 9, the Prince of Peace. And if the cutting off is Christ, the way Christ is cut off in Isaiah 53, then the people of the Prince would be the Jews. How is it that the people of the Prince destroy Jerusalem? The same way that the people of the prince destroyed the prince. They didn't do it by their hands. They used the Romans. And as the people, the Jews, rejected the Messiah, they endured a great outpouring of wrath. It's Matthew 24. The city would be surrounded. And that they were to Pray that their flight would not be in winter in a terrible time. So my supposition, my understanding would be that the people of the prince are the Jews and that by their disobedience of rejecting the Christ, continued to vie for political power against the Romans, causing their own destruction. I think that's how you'd read that. If the covenant is the new one, Jeremiah 31, 1 Corinthians 11, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10. And if the sacrifices end in fulfillment, which is exactly what Scripture tells us, that Christ put an end to the sacrifices by the sacrifice of Himself once and for all, then the great object of the passage is Christ and His work in redemption and the desolator at the end would be the antichrist that's the best way I can understand this passage and I think it's the way that treats the language of the passage does the least amount of violence to the language of the passage if you insert it another way you're going to have to call at some point either the antichrist an anointed one or the prince who is to come You're going to have to switch from the prince at the beginning of the passage and make it a different prince later in the passage with nothing in between to help you make that transition. But if you let the language flow naturally, this is the conclusion, I believe, that you end up with. Then, So that gives us a bottom line. And that is that the entire passage is not meant to highlight the bad guy in a frenzy of end times curiosity but is to put the hope and the joy and the comfort of Israel through Daniel in this prophecy squarely where it belongs in the Messiah who will come and be the remedy for human sin irrespective of all the other stuff that will go on in the intervening years. We're going to cover those intervening years when we get to chapter 11. So, what would I do with that? Well, Christ, the Prince of Peace, will come, Daniel. Christ will be bruised for our transgressions and cut out, cut out out of the land of the living, Daniel. Jerusalem will be destroyed in the Jews' rejection of him, Daniel. But he will still establish his new covenant and be the final and complete remedy for sin. This is a gospel passage. This is about the wonderful deliverance of the Savior from the sin that we inherited from Adam and that we have continued to multiply by our own disobedience and our own self. Maybe you don't know Christ here today. You're thinking, I don't know if I'm good enough to be with these Christian people. There's no such thing. First of all, because Christian people aren't good, we have a good Savior. He has redeemed us. Our righteousness is not our own. It belongs to Him. And He imputes it to us by faith. It's not ours. He lets us have it, but it's His. We are made righteous with the righteousness of another. You don't have to make yourself good. And you say, well, you know, if I... I, fall on my face right now and call upon Christ to forgive me of my sin and trust Him, I'll never be able to live up to the expectation. That's the second good part of the good news. He lived up to the expectation. So you don't have to. You say, but wait a minute. Won't that give me license to sin? Sky likes to tell a story about a guy who was overhearing another guy witness and telling him about grace. And this one guy said, if I'm believing the gospel the way you're telling it to me, then I can sin as much as I want and still be saved. And the one fellow said, now wait just one second and let me call to my buddy Bob. It was Bob Kilper, and my antecedent to my anaphors. He said, Bob, can you sin as much as you want? And Bob yelled back, oh, I sin much more than I want. Because that's what a changed heart. That's what a changed heart does. You'll start to hate your sin. You'll want free from it. You'll want out from it. You will find ways to understand the comfort of the gospel that we receive full and free forgiveness of sin the moment we call upon Him for that forgiveness and His blood, the Anointed One, the Prince who came, who was cut off, which is an act of judgment, for you and for me, that one is a put your trust in Him and Him alone and not in your religion and not in your works and not in your own righteousness and not because you think you're a good person, at least you're better than Jeffrey Dahmer. Not because of that, but because Christ saves lost people and pays for our sin with His blood at Calvary so that we can go free. If you don't know Him today, that's the Savior we're putting in front of you. He is the Prince of Peace, the one who was cut off, the one who to reject Him is destruction of the city of this world and to receive Him is everlasting life. To put your faith in Him is to be cleansed from all of your guilt and all of your sin and to never ever have to worry again because He has paid the price. Final. So don't be preoccupied with the Antichrist and one world governments. Please. Please. So what if someday we live in Glenbekistan? That <laughs> doesn't change Christ. Don't be worried about it. Will a one world government come? I don't know. If it does, what does that mean to the cross? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The economy's gonna to collapse tomorrow. Might be dead for the Jews. Economies have collapsed throughout history. And it hasn't changed the cross one iota. And it can't. Civilizations have come and they have gone. The Egyptians rose and they fell. The Jews rose and they fell. The Greeks rose and they fell. They're even falling more now. America may rise and it may fall and Christ will remain forever. Our hope is in Him. In no political party, in no political system, democracy isn't any more Christian. I've got news for you. There will not be a democracy in heaven. It is an absolute dictatorship under Christ the King. You and I don't get to vote in heaven. We get to vote now as part of a broken system, not as part of the great system to come. Where my provider meets every need. And I don't have to. Be consumed with the glory of the cross and Christ finished work for your salvation. That's what we get consumed with. That's where Daniel is. That's where the angel is pointing him at this time. The desolator is the last guy. He's the bump at the end. There's going to be some tough stuff here. The great stuff is the prince is going, to become, is going to come. And he's the prince of peace. He makes peace between you and God so that you are completely reconciled to him and it doesn't have to be on your own basis. That prince has come. He's cut off, meaning he takes your judgment on himself and is treated as a cast-off so that you can go free, He establishes the new covenant in His blood, an unbreakable covenant that cannot be removed, that says, it's the same kind of covenant I have with my wife, till death do us part. Now, when one party lives eternally, and then by virtue of salvation the second party lives eternally, there's no death to part you. There is no death that can part us. That's why Paul can say it in Romans 8. Neither life nor death can separate us from the love of Christ. It's impossible. And this is the new covenant. Sealed in His blood. Inaugurated on that night when He gave the cup to the disciples. And we participate in that every time we gather around the Lord's table. It's this Prince, this Messiah, cut off, establishing the covenant, ending the sacrifices that can never take away sin. So I don't have to do that anymore because He's my Passover. And oh yeah, desolator's going to come. It's not going to change anything. It's going to finish out history. There's not the focus. The cross is central to everything. Now, you can interpret this another way and have at it. It's just the best job I can do on it. This is how I understand the passage to flow. And, beloved, whatever you do in your own Bible study, in your own way of working through these issues, just make sure you make Christ the center. Christ must be the center because he is the one who is the great hermeneutic. Another good word for you. You all know that one. Some of you are saying, Herman who? Hermeneutic. That's not his last name. It's a way of, it's how you interpret the scripture. Christ is the great lens through which you interpret all of these things. See him in his proper place. And yes, there will be a desolator. We're going to deal with that in more detail when we get into chapter 11. We're going to get a little insight into the Antichrist and and what's going to happen there. But the Antichrist is just the Antichrist. Let me throw in one more thing because I finished up a little early here. So this is free. This isn't part of the sermon. It's just free. And uh, you don't even have to send me a gift or anything. Um, because, because we have, maybe maybe the church has, has fallen down here in some ways. Uh, maybe it's because Steven Spielberg is better at communicating his ideas than we are. But there are an awful lot of people out there, Christians included, who have this subconscious view of God and his universe that functions practically, for all intents and purposes, like Star Wars. There's the light side of the force, and there's the dark side of the force. Kind of these co-equal opposites. And and if you just put your eggs on the light side of the force, you'll overcome the dark side of the force. It's just bogus. That is, rank Hinduism It is not biblical. Probably didn't know you were watching a movie about Hinduism. That's basically what it is, but it's rank Hinduism. Light side of the force, dark side of the force, and then even Christians are bought into it. You make the the light side of the force increase by saying certain things and doing certain things and, and make the dark side of the force decrease by doing other things. Luke, I am your father. You know, I'm just waiting for that to happen out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. None of it's true. You need to understand that Satan is a created being. He is not omnipresent, which means he cannot be everywhere at once. He is not omniscient. He does not know all things. He is not omnipotent. He does not have all power. He is a single, finite, created, fallen angel. He is not God's antithesis. God has no antithesis. None. He's not God's opposite. He's the opposite of a good angel. He's just an angel. And at the end of the Bible, he's going to be done away with by one unnamed, lowly angel who comes out of heaven, binds him with a chain, throws him in the eternal pit. God isn't going to do it. He doesn't have to. He's just an errant angel. This is Christ's universe. And He'll bring His righteousness to pass. And it's not a, oh man, I hope the white light side wins over the dark side. It's a done deal. Christ is coming. And He's coming To inhabit his kingdom and to rule and reign for all eternity. Come to the king. Come to the prince. Come to the one who gave himself for you. That you might have everlasting life and absolute freedom from sin. That's that's who we preach. Christ and him crucified. Not the Antichrist and him sending black attack helicopters. I don't even know if the Antichrist likes black. I do. Because I look good in it because it makes me look thin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, help us keep Christ at the forefront of all things. Please. Please. It is so easy for us to get distracted. Father, I understand that there are different ways to work through some of these passages, they're difficult. And we don't want to camp on the even what's merely reasonable. We want to stay on what's certain. And this we know is certain. Christ was prophesied to come and he came. That in the garden you promised there would come one who would bruise the serpent's head, the one who first tempted us, and he came. That a child would be born of a virgin, and he came. That he would grow up like a root in dry ground, and he came. That he would be your word and speak for you as though you were here in person, and He came. That He would walk in perfect holiness and righteousness, and He came. That He would have compassion on us in our fallen condition, and He came. That He would go to the cross in our stead and willingly bear your wrath against human sin, and He came. That He would die and be buried, and He came. And that he would rise again from the dead, and he came. And that he would come again to claim his own and to raise us from the dead if perhaps he comes later than our human lives allow. And he will come. And it is that that we place all our hope and trust in. It is him that we cast ourselves upon this morning. It is his great grace and mercy and loving kindness that is our salvation, the love from You that sent Him for us. Now what can we do but give You praise and glory this morning and stand in awe and wonder at how all this could unfold. There are aspects to it we do not understand and places in our future, even in this very nation, that frighten us and terrify us. And yet, He has come. He has died. He has risen. And he has sent his spirit, and he will come again. That is our hope. That is our joy. That is our consolation. And as we leave here today, that is where we place our faith, in him and him alone. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for these truths. Seal them to our hearts in these wearisome days, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You Stand with me, please.